The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zolsdorf and another podcast. Lead kindly, light, amid the encircling gloom. Lead thou me We welcome as our guest today Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who was formerly a professor, an Archbishop of Munich, Prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and now gloriously reigning as I speak, as Pope Benedict XVI. He is the Vicar of Christ, the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. Today we continue with his 1991 talk on conscience and As I speak, there is a great debate raging in the United States about the Obama administration's encroachment on the First Amendment rights of all American citizens, especially in regard to religious liberty and freedom of conscience. It may be that at some future date, as you're listening to this podcast now, but at some future date, this whole debate will be resolved, or it might be worsened. But either way, the issue of religious liberty and freedom of conscience is not going away. Therefore, this information may be, as it were, evergreen. As an introduction to the second part of Joseph Ratzinger's 1991 talk on conscience and truth, here is something issued in 2012 by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, intended as a parish bulletin insert or handout, and it is called Why Conscience is Important. During the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s, Americans shone the light of the gospel on a dark history of slavery, segregation, and racial bigotry. The civil rights movement was an essentially religious movement, a call to awaken consciences. In his famous Letter from Birmingham Jail in 1963, Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. boldly said, The goal of America is freedom. As a Christian pastor, he argued that to call America to the full measure of that freedom was the specific contribution Christians are obliged to make. He rooted his legal and constitutional arguments about justice in the long Christian tradition. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. Some unjust laws impose such injustices on individuals and organizations that disobeying the laws may be justified. Every effort must be made to repeal them. When fundamental human goods, such as the right of conscience, are at stake, we may need to witness to the truth by resisting the law and incurring its penalties. The Church does not ask for special treatment simply the rights of religious freedom for all citizens. 
Reverend King also explained that the church is neither the master nor the servant of the state, but its conscience, guide, and critic. Catholics and many other Americans have strongly criticized the recent Department of Health and Human Services mandate requiring almost all private health plans to cover contraception, sterilization, and abortion-inducing drugs. For the first time in our history, the federal government will force religious institutes to fund and facilitate coverage of a drug or procedure contrary to their moral teaching, and purport to define which religious institutions are religious enough to merit an exemption. This is a matter of whether religious people and institutions may be forced by the government to provide such coverage, even when it violates our consciences. What we ask is nothing more than the right to follow our consciences as we live out our teaching. This right is not only about our ability to go to Mass on Sunday or pray the Rosary at home. It is about whether we can make our contribution to the common good of all Americans. Can we do the good works our faith calls us to do without having to compromise that very same faith? Without religious liberty properly understood, all Americans suffer, deprived of the essential contribution in education, health care, feeding the hungry, civil rights, and social services that religious Americans make every day. What is at stake is whether America will continue to have a free, creative, and robust civil society, or whether the state alone will determine who gets to contribute to the common good, and how they get to do it. Now that was from the USCCB, intended as an explanation of why conscious conscience is important. And they make some very good points in that. However, I don't think the very best arguments are linked to uh, we should be free to uh, exercise our uh, activities because we do good things and nice things for, for poor people or for the hungry or for the sick or whatever. The overriding issue is that the government is trying to define what a religious institution is and what religious institutions can and cannot do. That's the overriding thing. Whether this has to do with contraception or some other point, if they begin to make these definitions and force them on religious institutions in the United States, they are violating the First Amendment and they will go on to do other things to religious institutions as well including, as we see from this administration, the Obama administration right now, an attempt to redefine the parameters of religious liberty and make it into freedom of worship rather than freedom for religion. In other words, we, are, we might be free to do what we do in private, and this was brought up in the pamphlet, the handout by the USCCB that I just read. We may be free to worship in private, in a church, we're in our home, but we will not be permitted any voice in the public square. That's what's meant by a rephrasing, a morphing of religious liberty into freedom of worship, from freedom of religion into freedom of worship. Be very wary when you hear people talking about freedom of worship over and against freedom of religion. Now, with that as an introduction, let's go on to the second part of Joseph Ratzinger's talk entitled Conscience and Truth, 
presented at the 10th workshop for bishops in February of 1991 in Dallas, Texas. As you listen, you may want to tune your ear for some of the following points. Ratzinger will speak about now blessed John Henry Newman. Ratzinger has had a long, long relationship with the works of Newman, which influenced him even from his earliest days in seminary. Also remember Ratzinger's audience for this talk, namely American bishops in the early 1990s. Now we are privileged to listen in, but remember he's talking to bishops here. So referencing Newman, uh, who was made a cardinal, may also remind the listeners that even though they were very fancy people, uh, these matters of truth and conscience must be at the core of much of our work and thinking and must influence our concrete actions in the face of the prudential judgments we, that is the, the bishops who are listening, are forced to make. Uh, that is why I think he also so easily brings in Thomas More, who was killed, and Socrates, whom you will recall was also killed. The Gladstone, Ratzinger mentions, was a prime minister of England and one of Newman's correspondents. He eventually wrote a tract to which Newman would famously respond in defense of the church. Listen also for a far more interesting starting point for a theology of liberation buried in this talk. It's really quite interesting. In one of uh, Ratzinger's liturgical works called The New Song for the Lord, uh, he takes uh, for uh, some starting points for a liturgical theology some points from liberation theology. You might not have known that. Of course, Ratzinger knew the good points and the bad points of liberation theology like, like nobody else, since he had to deal with it as prefect. Also, Ratzinger will use the word praxeology. Praxeology with an X in it. He's, it's a fancy word. He's talking about human action based on purposeful behavior, I think. If memory serves, this is a term that comes out of the Austrian school of economics. And it's associated with the, the figure Ludwig von Mises. Ratzinger will also riff on Einstein's theory of relativity and even Heisenberg's proposal that the observing an event affects the event itself. He's really, uh, he's really getting around in his sources. Wow, we've got Newman and Thomas More and... Socrates and Einstein and von Mises, it's really a tour de force. Pay close attention to how Ratzinger gets to the point that conscience guides man to perceive the should of an action rather than the can of an action. That's because we have to be deeply involved in a dialogue with truth. So here is the second part of Joseph Ratzinger's talk entitled Conscience and Truth, presented at the 10th Workshop for Bishops in February 1991 in Dallas, Texas. Part 2. Newman and Socrates. Guides to Conscience. 
At this juncture, I would like to make a temporary digression before we attempt to formulate reasonable answers to the questions regarding the essence of conscience, we must first widen the basis of our consideration somewhat, going beyond the personal, which has thus far constituted our point of departure. To be sure, my purpose is not to try to develop a scholarly study on the history of theories of conscience, a subject on which different contributions have appeared just recently. I would prefer rather to stay with our approach thus far of example and narrative. A first glance should be directed to Cardinal Newman, whose life and work could be designated as a single great commentary on the question of conscience. Nor should Newman be treated in a technical way. The given framework does not permit us to weigh the particulars of Newman's concept of conscience. I would simply like to indicate the place of conscience in the whole of Newman's life and thought. The insights gained from this will hopefully sharpen our view of present problems and establish the link to history, that is, both to the great witnesses of conscience and to the origin of the Christian doctrine of living according to conscience. When the subject of Newman and conscience is raised, the famous sentence from his letter to the Duke of Norfolk immediately comes to mind, quote, Certainly, if I am obliged to bring religion into after-dinner toasts, which indeed does not seem quite the thing, I shall drink to the Pope, if you please, still to conscience first and to the Pope afterwards. Close quote. In contrast to the statements of Gladstone, Newman sought to make a clear avowal of the papacy, and in contrast to mistaken forms of ultramontanism, Newman embraced an interpretation of the papacy which is only then correctly conceived when it is viewed together with the primacy of conscience, a papacy not put in opposition to the primacy of conscience, but based on it and guaranteeing it. Modern man, who presupposes the opposition of authority to subjectivity, has difficulty understanding this. For him, conscience stands on the side of subjectivity and is the expression of the freedom of the subject. Authority, on the other hand, appears to him as the constraint on, threat to, and even the negation of freedom. So then, we must go deeper to recover a vision in which this kind of opposition does not obtain. For Newman, the middle term which establishes the connection between authority and subjectivity is truth. I do not hesitate to say that truth is the central thought of Newman's intellectual grappling. Conscience is central for him because truth stands in the middle. To put it differently, the centrality of the concept of conscience for Newman is linked to the prior centrality of the concept truth and can only be understood from this vantage point. The dominance of the idea of conscience in Newman does not signify that he, in the 19th century and in contrast to objectivistic neo-scholasticism, espoused a philosophy or theology of subjectivity. Certainly the subject finds in Newman an attention which it had not received in the Catholic theology, perhaps since St. Augustine. But it is an attention in the line of Augustine, and not in that of 
the subjectivist philosophy of the modern age. On the occasion of his elevation to cardinal, Newman declared that most of his life was a struggle against the spirit of liberalism in religion. We might add, also against Christian subjectivism, as he found it in the evangelical movement of his time, and which admittedly had provided him the first step on his lifelong road to conversion. Conscience, for Newman, does not mean that the subject is the standard vis-a-vis -vis the claims of authority in a truthless world, a world which lives from the compromise between the claims of the subject and the claims of the social order. Much more than that, conscience signifies the perceptible and demanding presence of the voice of truth in the subject himself. It is the overcoming of mere subjectivity in the encounter of the interiority of man with the truth from God. The verse Newman composed in 1833 in Sicily is characteristic. Quote, I loved to choose and see my path, but now lead thou me on. Close quote. Newman's conversion to Catholicism was not for him a matter of personal taste or of subjective spiritual need. He expressed himself on this even in 1844 on the threshold, so to speak, of his conversion. Quote, no one can have a more unfavorable view than I of the present state of Roman Catholics. Close quote. Newman was much more taken by the necessity to obey recognized truth than his own preferences, that is to say, even against his own sensitivity and bonds of friendship and ties due to similar backgrounds. It seems to be characteristic of Newman that he emphasized truth's priority over goodness in the order of virtues, or to put it in a way which is more understandable for us, he emphasized truth's priority over consensus over the accommodation of groups. I would say, when we are speaking of a man of conscience, we mean one who looks at things this way. A man of conscience is one who never acquires tolerance, well-being, success, public standing, and approval on the part of prevailing opinion at the expense of truth. In this regard, Newman is related to Britain's other great witness of conscience, Thomas More, for whom conscience was not at all an expression of subjective stubbornness or obstinate heroism. He numbered himself, in fact, among those faint-hearted martyrs who only after faltering and much questioning succeed in mustering up obedience to conscience, mustering up obedience to the truth, which must stand higher than any human tribunal or any type of personal taste. Thus, two standards become apparent for ascertaining the presence of a real voice or conscience. First, conscience is not identical to personal wishes and taste. Secondly, conscience cannot be reduced to social advantage, to group consensus, or to the demands of political and social power. Let us take a side look now at the situation of our day. The individual may not achieve his advancement or well-being at the cost of betraying what he recognizes to be true, nor may humanity. 
here we come in contact with the really critical issue of the modern age. The concept of truth has been virtually given up and replaced by the concept of progress. Progress itself is truth. But through this seeming exaltation, progress loses its direction and becomes nullified. For if no direction exists, everything can just as well be regress as progress. Einstein's relativity theory properly concerns the physical cosmos, but it seems to me to describe exactly the situation of the intellectual spiritual world of our time. Relativity theory states there are no fixed systems of reference in the universe. When we declare a system to be a reference point from which we try to measure a whole, it is we who do the determining. Only in such a way can we attain any results at all. But the determination could always have been done differently. What we said about the physical cosmos is reflected in the second Copernican revolution regarding our basic relationship to reality. The truth as such, the absolute, the very reference point of thinking, is no longer visible. For this reason, precisely in the spiritual sense, there is no longer up or down. There are no directions in a world without fixed measuring points. What we view to be direction is not based on a standard which is true in itself, but on our decision, and finally on considerations of expediency. In such a relativistic context, so-called teleological or consequentialist ethics ultimately becomes nihilistic, even if it fails to see this. And what is called conscience in such a worldview is, on deeper reflection, but a euphemistic way of saying that there is no such thing as an actual conscience, conscience understood as a co-knowing with the truth. Each person determines his own standards. And, needless to say, in general relativity, no one can be of much help to the other, much less prescribe behavior to him. At this point, the whole radicality of today's dispute over ethics and conscience, its center, becomes plain. It seems to me that the parallel in the history of thought is the quarrel between Socrates, Plato, and the Sophists, in which the fateful decision between two fundamental positions has been rehearsed. There is, on the one hand, the position of confidence in man's capacity for truth. On the other, there is a worldview in which man alone sets standards for himself. The fact that Socrates, the pagan, could become in a certain respect the prophet of Jesus Christ has roots in this fundamental question. Socrates, taking up of this question, bestowed on the way of philosophizing inspired by him a kind of salvation historical privilege and made it an appropriate vessel for the Christian Logos. For with the Christian Logos we are dealing with liberation through truth and to truth. 
If you isolate Socrates' dispute from the accidents of the time and take into account his use of other arguments and terminology, you begin to see how closely this is the same dilemma we face today. Giving up the idea of man's capacity for truth leads first to pure formalism in the use of words and concepts. Again, the loss of content then and now leads to a pure formalism in judgment. In many places today, for example, no one bothers any longer to ask what a person thinks. The verdict on someone's thinking is ready at hand, as long as you can assign it to its corresponding formal category. Conservative, reactionary, fundamentalist, progressive, revolutionary, Assignment to a formal scheme suffices to render unnecessary coming to terms with the content. The same thing can be seen in more concentrated form in art. What a work of art says is indifferent. It can glorify God or the devil. The sole standard is that of formal technical mastery. We have now arrived at the heart of the matter where contents no longer count, where pure praxeology takes over, technique becomes the highest criterion. This means, though, that power becomes the preeminent category, whether revolutionary or reactionary. This is precisely the distorted form of being like God of which the account of the fall speaks. The way of mere technical skill, the way of sheer power, is imitation of an idol and not expression of one's being made in the image and likeness of God. What characterizes man as man is not that he asks about the can, but about the should, and that he opens himself to the voice and demands of truth. It seems to me that this was the final meaning of the Socratic search, and it is the profoundest element in the witness of all martyrs. They attest to the fact that man's capacity for truth is a limit on all power and a guarantee of man's likeness to God. It is precisely in this way that the martyrs are the great witnesses of conscience, of that capability given to men to perceive the should beyond the can, and thereby render possible real progress, real ascent. That was the second part of Joseph Ratzinger's talk, given in 1991 to a group of bishops gathered in Dallas, Texas. The talk is called Conscience and Truth. The next section, the third section, is called Systematic Consequences, the Two Levels of Conscience. And that will be divided into two parts, Anamnesis and Conscientia two technical terms. Of course, he's talking to bishops, so they'll know what he means by those terms. And we will, too, very soon when we hear the third part. 
The third part, or the third podcast that I'm making on this, will also include his epilogue. But to wrap up this podcast, here is the prayer for the protection of religious liberty developed by the United States bishops for their Fortnight for Freedom campaign. O God, our Creator, through the power and working of your Holy Spirit, you call us to live out our faith in the midst of the world, bringing the light and the saving truth of the gospel to every corner of society. We ask you to bless us in our vigilance for the gift of religious liberty. Give us the strength of mind and heart to readily defend our freedoms when they are threatened. Give us courage in making our voices heard on behalf of the rights of your church and the freedom of conscience of all people of faith. Grant, we pray, O Heavenly Father, a clear and united voice to all your sons and daughters gathered in your church in this decisive hour in the history of our nation, so that with every trial withstood and every danger overcome, for the sake of our children, our grandchildren, and all who come after us, this great land will always be one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. And with that, I'm going to wrap this up. Please come visit the blog, Father Z's blog. What does the prayer really say? WDTPRS.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra.com. The easiest way to find me, however, is just to Google Father Z. You can come over and look at the very interesting com box under a variety of entries. Get involved in discussions. You can always use the donation button. And there are many other podcasts available, too. Just check out the menu at the top of the blog. In the meantime, please pray for me, as I will for you.